Yo, what's going on, everybody? This is Austin coming at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be switching gears a little bit from what we had spoken about a couple weeks ago um, after our podcast came out on how to choose the proper presser. Um, had a request to do um, how to choose kind of the um, the proper anti-hypertensive medication um, when we have uh, hypertensive or vascular emergencies. Um, and it is a very complex topic, so um, hopefully I will be able to do it justice here, um, talking about um, mostly emergency and critical care medications, but we're also going to talk a little bit about kind of home medications and the approach to um, you know a lot of those that we see our patients taking every single day. And before we get into all of that good stuff, got to give a shout out to um, the book. Uh, make sure that you go get your copy of the Flight Medic's Guide to Mechanical Ventilation today on Amazon as well as through the website. I'll put the link to our website in the show notes today. And one ask that I do have um, for all of you guys that have uh, purchased the book, which um, we are um, about a few months into it now that it's published. We've sold hundreds and hundreds of copies, and I am so incredibly thankful to each and every single one of you. But if you like the book and you would like other people to be able to discover the book, um, go on Amazon and go review that thing. Um, you know, that predominantly is where most people are going to find it. Uh, and the more Amazon reviews we get, the more visible it will start to become to other people. So if you can go on to Amazon and review that book for us, if you've read it and liked it, um, then I would greatly appreciate that. All right, now let's get into it. So when we talk about antihypertensive medications, I mean, we're really talking about a couple of things, right? So how does your body maintain a blood pressure? Well, I guess it's easy to or easier to explain it if we talk about it in terms of how we adjust our blood pressure when something changes out of the norm in our body. So if we have some kind of acute issue going on and our body detects that there is a lowering of the blood pressure or the fluid volume inside of our body, um, that lacking of pressure is detected throughout our body in several places like our heart and our brainstem and our kidneys, and it sets some things in motion. Predominantly, our body's first reaction is to increase our heart rate and the stroke volume, ideally, that we are putting out of the heart. And so we know in terms of medications that we're talking about um, our beta-1 receptors when we talk about heart rate and stroke volume. Now, the other thing that the heart is going to do is it's going to try to increase the fluid volume that is circulating inside of the body. And when we talk about fluid volume, we are talking about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or the RAS. Um, as a side note, I totally hate when people say the RAS system. Oh, drives me crazy. One of my pet peeves. Um, so it is just the RAS. And then the final thing that the body will do to try to improve that blood pressure is it will increase vascular resistance, right? And, and vascular resistance is actually a very complex area. Because first and foremost, what we're talking about is our alpha-1 receptors. And our alpha-1 alpha receptors or our alpha-adrenergic receptors are responsible for vascular constriction or vasoconstriction. 
But the other thing that's really going on in terms of vascular resistance is also the RAS, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, is responsible for creating, essentially, angiotensin II. It is responsible for releasing aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone, aka vasopressin. And so when we talk about vascular resistance, we're really talking about three receptors, right? We're talking about our alpha-1 receptors. We are also talking about our angiotensin II receptors, and we are talking about our V1 or our vasopressin receptors, all three of which are responsible for vascular constriction um, and, and um, smooth muscle cell contraction. So we've got like a lot of things going on when we talk about what equals blood pressure, because we have our heart rate, our stroke volume, our vascular resistance, and the fluid volume inside of that space. When we talk about those in terms of receptors, we have heart rate and stroke volume is beta 1. Fluid volume is the RAS. Resistance is alpha 1, angiotensin 2, and V1 receptors, predominantly by the RAS. Now, when a patient of ours has a history of hypertension and they are being placed on a blood pressure medication, an antihypertensive medication to go home with, um, it's actually generally confined to one area. It's pretty uncommon to place somebody on an alpha-1 blocker. Like they're out there. You do see random patients that are on terazosin. Some people pronounce it terazosin. Um, but uh, you will see people out there on those medications, but it's fairly uncommon to see those. What we generally see patients confined to are medications that are going to uh, affect the RAS because that is predominantly um, what is going to control the most amount of factors that control our blood pressure inside of our body. Most people listening to this podcast are probably very familiar with the renin-angiotensin system, but if you're not, it's okay, I'll review it super briefly. So essentially when your body detects, or when your kidneys rather detect a reduction in glomerular filtration, it kind of views it as the fact that there may be some, um, some fluid deficit going on inside of your body. And so renin, a hormone, is released. Renin interacts with angiotensinogen, which is always kind of floating around inside of your body, and converts to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 really essentially doesn't do anything. However, when it interacts with angiotensin converting enzyme, or ACE, it converts to angiotensin 2. And angiotensin 2 does a bunch of stuff. First and foremost, it is responsible for physical vasoconstriction because angiotensin 2 can interact with those A2 receptors in the vascular smooth muscle. But also angiotensin 2 goes to the adrenal glands and releases aldosterone and subsequently releases antidiuretic hormone. And those two together will help to reuptake salt and free water inside the kidneys to increase the fluid volume that's circulating in our vasculature. Antidiuretic hormone outside of working on the kidneys can also um, interact with V1 or vasopressin receptors in our smooth muscle of all of our blood vessels and cause some direct vasoconstriction as well. So when a patient has high blood pressure, we typically place them on medications that are going to interrupt the RAS. 
And we can do that in really three locations, two that are going to be very common and one that is a little less common, but you definitely see patients on these medications for sure. The first and probably one of the most common blood pressure medications prescribed in the United States is going to be an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril or enalapril or captopril and all of the prills that are all ACE inhibitors. And all it really does is it prevents angiotensin 1 from being converted into angiotensin 2, thereby stopping the system. And so angiotensin 2 cannot vasoconstrict. We are not releasing aldosterone. We're not releasing a bunch of antidiuretic hormone. And so on top of kind of some direct vascular relaxation, because we are no longer having angiotensin II um, uh, being created inside of the body, it's stopping aldosterone and ADH from being released. And so it does have this kind of incidental diuretic effect, especially when you first start taking it. And from somebody who has been taking blood pressure medication since I was 20 years old, um, I can attest to the fact that if you give any medication that interrupts the RAS, that you will definitely pee a little bit more. So the next uh, string of medications that we can give is we can actually allow the body to convert angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. Um, and then we can block the system kind of going forward from there. And there's actually some benefits to this in that when you take a lot of ACE inhibitors, anybody who has taken ACE inhibitors for a long period of time knows that they get those ACE inhibitor cough, that, that dry ACE inhibitor cough. Um, and they can also get some like angioedema and that's just like not super awesome. And so we can use medications that physically block angiotensin 2 or block the receptors that they sit in, and those would be called angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. And those are medications like Losartan and Valsartan. I would just say anecdotally that Losartan is one of the most common medications that I see nowadays. Um, and you look at recent studies and they show that mortality benefit between ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor blockers um, is basically the same. And so, uh, you know, it's probably um, just really up to provider preference as far as uh, which one they're going to prescribe you on because efficacy is very similar between the two. The final string of medications that you will see your patients on that are going to interrupt the RAS are going to be those aldosterone antagonists. Um, and we see those with medications like spironolactone, um, which, like I said, not incredibly common to see but you definitely do see them because it's allowing angiotensin II to be created and bind to our vascular smooth muscle. You are going to get that, that you know, smooth muscle cell contraction um, from angiotensin II, but it is not going to allow aldosterone to be able to do the things that it needs to do. So spironolactone, um, you know, when you think about it, is kind of like a diuretic because it's just not allowing the body to reuptake a bunch of water and salt as it wants to do when ADH and aldosterone are swimming around inside of our kidneys. Now, some of you are maybe thinking like, okay, so I get it, like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, angiotensin II blockers, and aldosterone antagonists, um, that's all good and dandy, but we see a bunch of people being placed on beta blockers too, like everybody and their mom is on metoprolol and atenolol, and, um, and you also see a lot of patients on propanolol as well, and so where does that come into play and why are so many Americans prescribed these beta blockers? Because that seems very counterintuitive that 
we would want to just block beta 1 in order to reduce blood pressure. Because when we look at the receptors and we look at how our blood pressure is regulated, when we look at beta 1, we think about heart rate and stroke volume. What many people do not really realize is that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is started because of beta-1. And so when you have a reduction in circulating fluid volume, when you have a reduced GFR, beta-1 receptors are stimulated in the juxtaglomerular cells in the kidneys, and that is what starts the entire renin-angiotensin system. And so when patients are placed on atenolol or metoprolol at home, sure, they are going to have a reduction in their heart rate. But what the what beta blockers are really kind of predominantly doing for your blood pressure is it's just not allowing the RAS to even begin, right? It's not even allowing renin to be stim or to be released in the kidneys because beta-1 stimulation is what is required to start that renin-angiotensin system. So when you just look at its face value for beta blockers, like what is the main goal of a beta-1 blocker? It is to reduce the heart rate and the stroke volume. However, anytime you get a beta or you give a beta blocker, you are going to see a reduction in blood pressure because it is blocking those beta-1 receptors in the juxtaglomerular cells and the apparatus therein. And so the RAS cannot even get going. Some other big names beside metoprolol, atenolol, and propanolol that we see inside of the beta-1 blockers um, is going to be esmolol. And esmolol is definitely an emergency medication. Um, it's an IV medication, which is why it is more predominantly chosen for beta blockade in our setting over something like metoprolol, which is typically given in a um, in a single dose um, instead of an IV infusion. Um, and so it is much more titratable for our needs versus those other medications like metoprolol um, and, and uh, propanolol. Moving on down the line, we have our alpha-1 receptors. And so we know alpha-1 receptors are responsible for direct vasoconstriction. Um, stimulation of your alpha-1 adrenergic receptors through epinephrine and norepinephrine is what causes smooth muscle contraction, right? Or it's what stimulates smooth muscle contraction inside of our vasculature. And so there are many medications, or there's several medications anyway, out there that are specifically alpha-1 receptor blockers. And there are two that, you know, I have never personally given. Those are um, uh, uh, prazosin and, um, and terazosin or terazosin. Um, but we also have labetalol inside of this alpha-1 blocker as well. So the entire goal of an alpha-1 blocker is to cause direct vasoconstriction because it is not allowing those adrenergic receptors, those alpha receptors, to stimulate vasoconstriction. And so if you can't stimulate vasoconstriction, you will naturally start dilating. And like I said, those are the two Zosin medications as well as labetalol. But labetalol has an LOL on the end of it, and so it should be a beta blocker. And in fact, it is also a beta blocker. Labetalol is an alpha and beta blocker, and so it is very versatile and it is very commonly used, um, especially here in the United States. Um, uh, who knows, it could be used in other parts of the world, but I cannot speak to other parts of the world. 
So when you give somebody labetalol, labetalol, you are going to be directly vasodilating our blood vessels. However, you are also going to be reducing heart rate and stroke volume because it is a primary beta blocker as well. So in terms of our blood pressure being a mixture of heart rate, stroke volume, resistance, and fluid volume, we know that if we need that heart rate and stroke volume to come down, we need to be primarily looking at a beta blocker. And that is in the emergency setting, in the critical care setting, generally we're looking at something like Esmolol. If you are simply looking to reduce vascular squeeze and you are just looking to dilate blood vessels directly, then we look at something like an alpha-1 blocker, which would be something like labetalol. The issue with labetalol is that it does also cause your heart rate to go down, and so you can have kind of precipitous drops in your blood pressure as you're not only vasodilating, but you're also dropping their cardiac output at the same time because of the beta-1 blockade. And so as I had said a few minutes ago, while they are definitely commonly used, um, we tend to look at maybe alternative agents that are going to be a little more easily titratable um, and not have any accidental unwanted side effects. And that is where our next class of medication comes in, which is our calcium channel blockers. And our calcium channel blockers, those don't really fit into the whole receptor matrix that we had talked about between the angiotensin II, the vasopressin, the alpha-1, the beta-1, and the RAS. And so how does calcium channel blocking fit into our mold? Well, when you are trying to constrict a muscle, Calcium has to enter into the cell, really the, the cell wall or cell membrane, and calcium binds to and activates something called myosin. And there is a very sciencey kind of um, <laughs> process that happens in order for calcium to activate myosin, but essentially that is the finish line, right? So it activates myosin. Now myosin interacts with ATP. It is it, it becomes phosphorylated, um, uh, so it interacts with ATP or energy, um, and it allows actin and myosin to bind with each other and create that meshwork or that network between actin and myosin, and that is how muscle contraction works. And it's no different in your vasculature. And so if you want the smooth muscle cells of your blood vessels to not be able to do that, to not be able to create a connection between actin and myosin, all we have to do is block calcium's ability to get into those things, and then actin and myosin cannot constrict or cannot cause constriction, and so those smooth muscle cells stay relaxed in that vascular um, in that vasculature, and your blood pressure goes down. And so, um, with calcium channel blockers, you actually have to kind of break them up into two categories. You have dihydropyridines and you have non-dihydropyridines. Non-dihydropyridines are the calcium channel blockers that we use to control heart rate for cardiac arrhythmias like cardizem and diltiazem and verapamil. On the 
dihydropyridine side, that's where we get our blood pressure medications for calcium channel blockers. And those are all of the depenes. So you have your clavidipine, your nicardipine, your amlodipine. Amlodipine is used predominantly as a home medication, but nicardipine and clavidipine are definitely used in the emergency setting. Clavidipines, um, I, I won't say newer, but I think that it may be coming a little bit into favor. I'm seeing it in guidelines um, now where I was not seeing it in guidelines several years ago. But nicardipine, also known as cardine, is um, a very, very common medication, and it's incredibly titratable, which makes it really attractive to people like us who are looking to relax vascular smooth muscle and not have a bunch of other unwanted side effects. The nice thing about these dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, like the ones that end in depine, um, uh, like nicardipine, they don't affect the calcium in the sarcoplasm of the heart muscle. And so it's not going to reduce your cardiac output. It's not going to slow your dromotropy or your inotropy like, you know, like um, those cardiac calcium channel blockers like verapamil and cardizem. So really, if you're looking to reduce somebody's blood pressure in the emergency setting, but you're not really interested in dumping their heart rate at the same time um, in a very unpredictable manner, then a calcium channel blocker is going to be a little bit more attractive over an alpha-1 blocker as they are more predictable, more easily titratable, and do not have any unknown side effects, not unknown, but unforeseen side effects at the bedside. And so really when we're talking about emergency medicine or critical care medicine, and we're talking about these, these receptors and far, as far as beta blockers, we're really looking at esmolol. You can throw metoprolol in there too as a single dose IV medication, but really we're talking about esmolol as a drip. If you're looking to block alpha-1 receptors, you're really talking about labetalol. If you're looking to just have vascular smooth muscle relaxation, aka reduce that resistance inside of the vessels, then you're looking at a calcium channel blocker and you're basically talking about nicardipine in our world and setting. Now there are other medications out there that don't really fit into these boxes. The first one is hydralazine and then the second is nitroprusside. Now the hydralazine is a very interesting medication. It's a direct vasodilator. Um, and so when you give hydralazine, really the mechanism of action, despite the fact that this is a common, uh, common medication to give, um, despite its mechanism, like it's not 100% understood exactly what it does. Um, and so, uh, it, it, uh, definitely reduces calcium's ability to phosphorylate and um, interact with myosin. And it also, it is believed that it promotes the release of nitric oxide in the cell. And nitric oxide is responsible for for um, phosphorus getting off of, um, of that myosin and thereby breaking myosin and actin apart when you when you dephosphorylate um, uh, that actin myosin binding that's how you get muscle relaxation and, and nitric oxide is responsible for that and so hydrolazine is definitely a direct vasodilator the the issue that I have with hydrolazine is that it is also known to cause a compensatory 
sympathetic response. And so when you give hydrolyzine, you're going to get this lowering of your blood pressure that tends to be like a little unpredictable, but you are also going to have some sympathetic stimulation. And so a lot of um, a, a lot of the time when I see hydrolyzine given, it'll also be given at the same time with like a beta blocker to make sure that the heart rate doesn't come up at the same time. And so, I mean, it just seems like it's adding a little complexity to the situation that maybe doesn't need to be there. Now, if there's a bunch of information about hydrolyzine that I don't know, I would love to hear about it. Um, but, uh, you know, in my limited exposure or experience with hydrolyzine, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily like the best choice for us to use in our world. Now, the final medication was nitroprusside. Nitroprusside is actually pretty self-explanatory, right? And so it has nitro in the name, and so uh, should should be pretty obvious what it does. Um, but nitroprusside is actually pretty interesting as far as like an organic nitrate. And so um, what it does is it, it, it gets into your body. It actually breaks apart into several, several chemicals. Um, it actually has to interact with oxyhemoglobin in your body in order to be converted into nitric oxide. It does release a little bit of like cyanide as well um, into, your, into your body. Obviously not enough to be like harmful. Otherwise, we wouldn't use that medication. But essentially what nitric oxide does is when NO or when nitric oxide gets into a vascular smooth muscle cell, it activates a chemical, um, a dormant chemical into cyclic GMP. And what um, cyclic GMP does is it is responsible for tearing off a phosphate from ATP, turning it into ADP, and taking actin and myosin apart, right? It stops actin and myosin from holding hands, and you get direct vascular relaxation or direct smooth muscle relaxation, specifically in this case in our vascular smooth muscle. Um, and so we have vasodilation. That's also why nitroglycerin works. It does the very similar thing. And so those are both on the table, but um, nitroprusside is a very um, has a very narrow window for sure. Does not take a lot of medication in order to kind of get where you're wanting to go. It's not incredibly titratable, um, and so because of that, I'm talking about these, but I'm we're, I'm generally not putting them into kind of my think map of where I necessarily want to go with people. So really, we're talking about essentially three medications, maybe four, um, but really we're talking about esmolol if we want heart rates to go down. If we want to relax smooth muscle, we're talking about cardine. If we're looking to maybe do both of those things at the same time, we're looking at labetalol. I'll throw hydrolyzine in that equation as well because hydrolyzine is still a medication that is very frequently used as a second-line antihypertensive medication during preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. Not sure how I feel about that, but it is very, very commonly used, um, and it probably was the primary antihypertensive medication used for a very long time before labetalol came in and took its place. All right, so if we know kind of what we need to give for each one of our goals, um, we can start to fit these things into a priorities list for kind of the three like hypertensive emergencies that I can think of off the top of my head. The first and foremost is gonna be a, a neurovascular emergency, right? So some sort of stroke or uh, subarachnoid that we're looking to um, get our blood pressure down on. 
But that one should be pretty simple, right? We don't necessarily want to just start dumping um, labetalol into these patients because we don't want their blood pressure and their heart rate to come down because we definitely do not want these people to become hypotensive and bradycardic when they have an increase in intracranial pressure or they have just a, a decrease in cerebral blood flow. And so we want to be able to very titratably reduce blood pressure um, without really affecting the heart rate very much. And so your kind of number one, if you've got a neuroemergency, is generally going to be a calcium channel blocker, meaning nicardipine. Um, cardine has a very simple way to start. You'll essentially start at like five milligrams an hour and you'll titrate it up from there in typically increments of like two and a half milligrams per hour at a time until you get the desired effect. There are a lot of guidelines out there that'll tell you to reduce it down to like three milligrams an hour after your desired effect, um, but uh, I think that's very provider dependent. Now, beyond that, for neuroemergencies, if you did not have a calcium channel blocker available to you, then the next obvious choice would be to do an alpha-1 blocker like labetalol, um, uh, just knowing that you are going to have a reduction in your heart rate at the same time, so you do have to be cognizant of that and to be careful. Now, the second... Um, vascular emergency, I guess, um, could be hypertensive emergency, um, is going to be some sort of like aortic injury, right? So a, um, a, a, a dissecting aortic aneurysm or a AAA um, or something that is getting ready to rupture. Um, we have a couple things that we need to kind of think about there. So First and foremost, the, the blood pressure, the consistent pressure inside of those blood vessels is important. But what's really important is the amount of times per minute that blood vessel is getting blasted with the systolic blood pressure, right? And so the, the most important thing for a vascular emergency is the shearing force of getting consistently hit with a bolus of blood. So our primary concern when somebody has a vascular emergency is to reduce the heart rate. And the only one really on the list for reducing the heart rate in terms of being very titratable is going to be Esmolol. Um, Esmolol is a, another kind of interesting medication. You have to do a loading dose with it of like 500 mics per kilo. Um, and then you start them on like a 50 mic per kilo per minute drip and you can titrate it up from there in increments of 50 um, to a max like infusion doses, somewhere around like 300 mics per kilo per minute, so a pretty big dose. But Esmolol is really, really titratable, and if you accidentally overshoot it, like that shit is like off in a second. It burns up really, really quickly, has a super short half-life, and so I really like that medication. After you get the heart rate down through a beta blockade, Knowing that your blood pressure is going to come down as well when you give Esmolol because you're not allowing the RAS to get going because you're blocking those beta-1 cells in, the, um, in that you know, juxtacomerialis. Um, and so you are going to have a reduction in your blood pressure. But after you get the heart rate where you want it to go for a vascular emergency, um, if they are still hypertensive at that time, then you need to just do some some smooth muscle relaxation, meaning a calcium channel blocker. I have seen um, people on an Esmolol drip and their heart rate is down and they um, see that they're still a little hypertensive and so they want to give something like labetalol. And I think that that's a really dangerous thing to do because we know that labetalol is going to continue to reduce the heart rate because it's also a beta blocker. And so I would really, really 
be not stoked to um, be asked to do that. And so for vascular emergencies, starting off with a beta-1 blocker, meaning esmolol essentially, and then going to a calcium channel blocker if you need to, but only if you need to. We need to get the heart rate optimized first. We need to reduce the shearing force that we're getting. That you know that 90 beat per minute heart is just crushing that dissection. And so we need to reduce that heart rate down to like 60. So that way it's not getting sheared so often. And then only if they're still hypertensive are we gonna add on like a potassium, or excuse me, a calcium channel blocker. Don't give them a potassium channel blocker, calcium channel blocker. And then the third and final hypertensive emergency that's fairly common anyway is going to be pregnancy-related emergencies like pregnancy-induced hypertension, which with, with pregnancy-induced hypertension, um, you'll very oftentimes see those moms get things like hydralazine. Um, or you have preeclampsia, or you have HELP syndrome, or you have a very hypertensive eclampsic or eclamptic mom who's like a post-seizure that's still really hypertensive. Um, the literature is pretty clear nowadays with any pregnancy-related hypertensive emergency that the first line um, is going to be labetalol, essentially. You're going to reduce the heart rate and reduce the blood pressure at the same time with labetalol. Um, and then the secondary medication would potentially be hydrolazine for them. Just knowing that oftentimes in these scenarios with pregnancy-related hypertension, it's going to be somebody who's in a very acute illness phase, and it's going to be very self-limiting like how long they need to be on these medications because oftentimes they're in some sort of labor at the, at the time when we get to them. Um, and so they're not going to be on these medications for a very, very long time. Um, but things like esmolol, nicardipine, not really well discussed in the literature for pregnancy. And so we're, we're kind of trapped inside of the either labetalol or hydralazine for those two patients. All right, guys, I think that's all I've got. Um, I appreciate every single one of you guys for stopping by um, and listening to my ramblings this week. Before I head off, do have to sh do some shout outs. Um, first and foremost to uh, Julian, um, who's a longtime listener and um, a paramedic over in Florida. Uh, Julian like totally sent me some amazing coffee that my wife and I love. And so I greatly appreciate it, man. Um, uh, super duper nice of you. Um, and one other shout out to uh, Nathan who's working in an ICU over in the Netherlands. We've been having some like super um, fun conversations over Instagram over the last like week or two um, about blood gas stuff and uh, um, super appreciated, man. I really love those, um, those cases. They're so, especially the one that we had just gone over super duper crazy. Um, uh, for the rest of you guys, you know, you can always reach me on any of the social media platforms on Facebook um, uh, or on Instagram. I go on Instagram as uh, at coffee break hems. Um, and I love to hear from you guys. If you have any suggestions, for further episodes or any questions about anything, please reach out to me and let me know. Um, and don't forget to cruise over to Amazon as soon as this episode is done and go give uh, our book um, a review so that way more people can continue to find it around the world. Um, you can always reach me as well at my email at kaisercprgmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R-Gmail.com. And I'll see you guys in a few weeks.